Let us ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word and for our hearing and understanding. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we give you praise. We thank you, Lord, that you are ever on your throne and that your son Jesus is at your right hand making intercession for us. We ask today, O Lord, that you would please give us wisdom and understanding your word and the courage to be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as a, as a father, um, I don't like chaos. And so, many of most of you know, I think all of you in this room anyway, you know that I have eight children. And I used all kinds of schemes to keep our dining room table orderly. Um, that's funny, I looked out and someone with two children was out there laughing. If you think your table gets, uh, gets boisterous, all I can say is imagine that with eight children. I even once, for a period of time, I made a, I learned this trick growing up. Uh, I was in this boys group and we could only talk when we had the talking stick. So I did, I decorated up like an Indian talking stick and they could only talk when they had that talking stick in their hand to try to keep the chaos down. Um, and I say all that because if you were to come and even drop in when all of my children, even as adults, come around the table today, it is full of joy, it is full of chaos, um, and there's vigorous laughter going on. And I can tell you throughout the years, it hasn't always been the place where you go, we love the food at the table. Sometimes it was just food to get us by. You know, beans and rice without the sausage. But my kids love the table. God is gracious. The table is a place of fellowship. We're going to look at our uh, gospel reading today from John chapter 12. And we're going to see that there is a table there. And we're going to evaluate who the people are at the table and take a look at what the implications are for us as Christians. And of course, after we hear all this, we're going to come to the table, God's table of peace and fellowship, where He will renew His covenant promises to us. What joy. Let us read God's word from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spinkered, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have. 
but me you do not always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So there's a lot going on in this passage, and it starts with this idea that they were all sitting at this table. A supper was being prepared, and they were going to take part of it in, uh, together. You know, the table, as far as biblically speaking, first shows up in the book of Exodus. And it's in the tabernacle to, to hold the face bread, often translated as show bread, but that word is actually face. It's about the faces sitting there in the temple, face, facing God, the faces being there in relationship. And that face spread sat before the Lord and was a sign of God the Father's covenant table of peace with Israel. It reminded Israel that all of their needs would be provided by Yahweh. Exodus 25.30 says this, And you shall set the showbread, or the face bread, on the table before me always. Now this is important. The first place we see table, it's about being in relationship with God. Being in the place of communion with God. We also see as we consider what the, what the table means throughout the scriptures is understanding the king's table. We see that it says this, the king's table was a place not just of a meal, but it also communicated the familial provision and royal authority that was bestowed to those who ate from it. That is so significant. It's also why we see in Psalm 23, where it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy, and you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. It shows provision, protection, and our relationship to God in the midst of our enemies. We see when we look at Solomon, and he, when he builds the temple in 1 Kings, he too has a table for the face bread. Made It says in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 48, Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, which was for the showbread. We see elsewhere in Proverbs chapter 9 that wisdom provides a table and provides all that we need. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished a table. It is important that we recognize that the table is a very important place. I recently saw some statistics that show that one of the greatest reasons that young people continue to be in the faith is that one of the contributing factors is being at their table with their parents talking about God. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, when you lie down, when you get up, when you go by the road, when you sit down and eat, talk about the Lord, 
the table becomes the center of all that we do as a family. It becomes the center of what we do as the church. And it becomes the center of what we are called to do in relationship to evangelizing the world. We see in Matthew chapter 9 that Jesus continues to eat and drink with sinners and traitors, those who compromised with the Romans, their oppressors. Matthew 9, 10 says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. We should see two things clearly about the table. All we need comes from the king's table. Sonship. Like last week's prodigal son, restored to relationship with a robe of Christ's righteousness, a ring of sonship authority, and sandals, which demonstrates not merely being a servant, but truly being a son. It is full restoration. And second, we should see that the table is a place of relationship. The church and family and the unbelieving world. Now one of my favorite theologians is Jim Jordan. And he has a book called The Sociology of the Church. And chapter 11 in that book emphasizes the fact, that's my favorite chapter in the book, by the way. It emphasizes the fact that we come to the Lord's table and this demonstrates God's grace to us. We are reminded of all that Jesus did for us. And we're going to eat this bread and partake of this wine. And to us, these are just elements of bread and wine. And yet God demonstrates and reminds himself through this act of obedience of doing these things of his great and precious promises to us through the mercy and the work of his son. And that when we have people to our table, we too are doing the same thing, a demonstration of God's mercy and grace to them. People of God, invite your neighbors, invite other Christians, invite people to sit at your table. You think, man, I can't have any dishes in the sink. My kids' toys are everywhere. There might be dust on top of the refrigerator. Or you might say, I can't cook. Or I can't do this, or I can't do that. Just as we come to this table, and this is all God's work, when you invite others to your table and you talk about Christ, it's all God's work. It's all God's work. I can tell you again as a father of eight children, if I said, well, people can only come over to the house, this is when they were little, of course, if the house was 100% clean and ready to go, no one would ever come to the house. Now, we got routines and we did things, and I wouldn't say that our house was a train wreck, but the reality is we don't live... And it's wrong to teach that you live in some sort of perfect world. No, God calls you to be alive. Kids are going to make messes. 
Kids are going to make noise. That's okay. Just like here in this church, when kids make noise in church or drop something or realize that the support beams make glorious noise, right? Those are sounds of God's covenant grace to us. Don't be uptight, but recognize the grace of God to all his people in this room. As we think about these things, let's consider the characters at the table. First of all, we see Mary. We're going to call Mary the Grateful. Mary the Grateful. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so that when he... Okay, I'm sorry. I forgot to put a marker in there. So we, we see that Mary comes to the table, and what does she do? She is listening. She loves... Mary, Mary loves Jesus. Jesus loves Mary. Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These are his close friends. But these are sinners that are at the table. And she wants to worship Jesus. And so she takes something very costly, and it mentions in the passage it being worth 300 denarii, which means nothing to us other than I'll say this. That's about a year's worth of wages. I want you to think about what you make in a year, those of you that are working. Whatever that number is, think about taking that number, purchasing that, and taking it in an act of gratitude and worship to the Lord. And I think Mary had an insight. I think... And, and you can see this narrative all through the Gospels. His 12 disciples, they resisted what Jesus said about his death. They resisted that. Even Peter said, don't talk that way. I think Mary was listening. And she recognized that Jesus was headed to the cross. She might not have known that it was a cross, but she knew that he was headed towards death because she'd been listening. And she was grateful for all that Jesus had done for her. If we look back in uh, John chapter 11, and you'll see me do this frequently, we actually move back and look at the previous chapter to have good context. We see in John chapter 11, it's a familiar passage. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he, that is, Lazarus, was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. By the way, when Jesus talks about that, his disciples, knowing that Judea and that Bethany, where they were going to go, was only two miles from Jerusalem, they actually questioned Jesus' rationale. Why would you go there? That's a dangerous place for you right now. Don't go there. But Jesus says, no, we're going to go. 
If we drop down to verse 20, it says, Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. I want to just say this about Martha. You can see Martha show up in different places. And Martha is the practical one. She is always thinking three things ahead. She's planning and preparing. We know that another place she complains that um, Mary's not helping. She's all about business, business, business. Can you imagine for just a second our Lord and Savior showing up somewhere on the scene? You know you've got a great need and you scold Jesus if you'd only been here sooner. And she knows that word was sent to him. But you know, she still believes in him as the Savior, so she says, okay, well, but whatever, you know, I know you were late in coming, God. Just, uh, just whatever you ask, I know God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Boy, she is kind of... She's kind of pokey there, isn't she? Now, let's be honest. We've all had those moments where we've questioned God's timing. We've questioned what God is doing. We've been like Martha. And when God responds, we go, I know. I know. We're so full of ourselves. We're so full of pride. We think we know what God is doing. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He makes a statement. And then he answers Martha by saying, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come to the world. Do you notice that she doesn't answer the question? She says, yes, I know you're the Christ. I know who you are. Sometimes we can acknowledge God, but we are not believing God. We're still finding questions. Machen, in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, points out, and this was written in the 1930s, points out that the question really at hand is the same one, and you've heard me say this again and again and again, and I'm going to keep saying it till I have no breath left. That, that question is, hath God really said? Did God really say? That is the crux of everything, isn't it? We recognize that we're so full of ourselves, our perceptions, our view of the world, that we will not believe and trust in God's Word. And that's not an academic thing. That's an actionable item. Believing God's Word is an actionable item. It should cause you to take steps in your daily life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do we believe it? 
back to this narrative in John chapter 11, just to show that Jesus loves these people, these sinners saved by grace. It says in John 11.35, shortest verse in the Bible, right? Every kid ought to know this. Jesus wept, that's right. And then verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved them. See, there are people that can get out there and say, oh, look at those religious people, see how they, Jesus loves them. Because he, he's saddened. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of blind also have kept this man from dying? Again, there's all these questions. They're missing what he said. I am the resurrection. I am the life. In verse 38, then Jesus again groaning in himself. That is, he is so, so sad for the loss of, of Lazarus and for the pain that these disciples of his have. He's groaning. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Here's practical Martha again. The sister of him who was dead said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. She's still not believing that he is the resurrection and the life. I'm not sure she understood the implications of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Lord of all. Because she still didn't believe. Why, why would she care about that stench? It wasn't because she didn't want the foul odor in her nose. It was rather that he's dead dead. I mean dead, I mean very dead. In verse 43, now when he had said these things, that is Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Jesus loved these people. He contended with these people. He taught these people. And he loved this family. Jumping back to John 12 in this table where Mary comes and she takes this, these oils and spices and she anoints Jesus' feet and uses her hair on his feet. You know, hair for a woman, that's the sign of her glory. We know scripture says that. All that she has, this, this value, or a whole year's worth of wages there, knowing that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die? Because she's been listening. Because remember, when, when Martha's complaining that Mary's doing no work, Jesus commends Mary for being there and listening to him. She's paying attention. Mary was grateful not just that her brother had been restored to life, but that the son of the living God, the Messiah, had cared for her and her family. Jesus was in a real relationship with them, not because Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were powerful and influential, 
but because they desired to be forgiven. Mary comes and does two significant things. One, she demonstrates her humility in anointing Jesus' feet. She demonstrates her gratefulness. Her thankfulness is demonstrated by her listening to Jesus' words of his impending death. Jesus not only saw this act as grateful worship, but also that she kept some, the scripture says, for the actual time of his death. We need to listen to God's word and take actions that show we are obeying God both in the present and in the future. Second character there at the table is Judas, and we're going to call Judas the disappointed. But one of his disciples, and this is back in 12, verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why has this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Judas, like the other disciples, had followed Jesus with the understanding that they had a shot to be the greatest in the kingdom of the Messiah. And if you don't believe me, I know I've actually preached on this before in in just this last year, but I will remind you that again and again and again, those disciples, they are constantly jockeying for position. They want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, even so much that James and John's mother goes and says, Hey, can my sons, can they one be at your right and one at your left? And Jesus says, If you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. The first few years to Judas and the other disciples, they seem great. Jesus is gaining in popularity. Thousands are following. They're chasing Jesus. And in a passage we read in the last few weeks, it says they were actually stepping upon one another to get a view of him, to listen. That's a lot of eagerness. But Jesus begins challenging the popular ideas of what the Messiah would do for Israel and the Gentiles and even his closest followers. Jesus spoke of repentance and of the coming judgment. Jesus was such a downer to the idolatrous messianic view that Israel was going to take revenge against their oppressors and rule the world. For those that were self-seeking, that was the message of the Messiah. When he comes, he'll become king. And he's going he's to lead us to victory over everybody that's ever done anything to us. And then we'll have our revenge. It's idolatry. Judas wanted to be powerful. He was not grateful for all that Jesus was doing. He was not repentant. And Jesus cared for Judas. He had not expelled him. As a matter of fact, he doesn't expel him in the midst of all his sin. He keeps preaching repentance. John 6, 
in, in case you're not convinced yet, look at what happens in John 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? This is after Jesus says hard things. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is some months before he says that, but he's still not really understanding. Also, we have come to believe that you, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Did I, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Jesus knew what Simon the son of Simon was doing, what Judas was doing. Judas saw his time with Jesus as an opportunity to be great and rich. And because that wasn't the case, he began to steal it. Beware of attempting to serve God. That is to say, a Christian for your own purposes. Be aware, be aware of attempting to serve God. Do it in such a way that it's for your own purposes. See that God, the Father, is merciful and wants to restore you to fellowship with Him. Our temptation is to try to do it our way, as if we can negotiate with God, the creator of the universe. We, like Judas, often want God on our own terms. No. Confess your sin and repent. That is to change your actions and your thoughts and be submissive to what God's word says. Big warning in the midst of this time at the table. Next, we see Lazarus the persecuted. Now, might, many might say, no, it should be Lazarus the resurrected. Well, that's true, but he, because he's resurrected, he's now persecuted. We see in verse 9, now a great many of the Jews knew that he, that is Jesus, was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only. Did you pick up on that? But that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They wanted to go see Lazarus. He was a show. It was to meet their needs, their appetites for the sensational. I think if we... Look at what is called news today. It's what ears want to hear, itching ears. It's what's tantalizing. It's the sensational. There are wars not only going on in Europe, but in many places around the world where thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying all over the world. Some are Christians, some are not. And we spend three days of our media coverage emphasizing the fact that one actor slapped another actor and what an offense it is, or is it offense? I don't know, how do we work this out with no moral... I don't know. It's sensationalism. Jesus is there, and people aren't just coming because of Jesus. They're coming to see the sensational. Is this guy Lazarus really alive? But that's not all that's going on. Verse 10, 
But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because, on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Lazarus was selected to die because God had raised him from the dead. Sometimes, people of God, God does a work in your life, and God-haters want to press back against you. They want to persecute you. Remember, God's mercy gave Lazarus life, and it brought contempt from the God-haters. And the chief priest wanted no one else but himself to be followed. Those chief priests, those leaders of Israel, religious and political, were grasping to a false narrative. We're now going to look at Caiaphas, and you'll say, well, Caiaphas wasn't sitting at the table. His agents were, and it's Caiaphas, the self-preserving guy. I, I bring this up. It's going to be relevant to us, but I want to point this out. If you're a person in power, political office or otherwise, and all you do are things with an attempt to just keep yourself in office as the leader and that's all you're doing you are deceitful to yourself and to others Caiaphas saw his role as the high priest as simply a cultural job that led to power he was a Sadducee and that meant that he did not believe in the resurrection Think about this now. The guy that's supposed to be the top priest in all of Israel is part of a group that doesn't even believe in the resurrection. And one might argue, well, maybe he came by it honestly and he, did, he wasn't trained. But he was around and his agents were around over and over and over again when Jesus called for repentance, explained it, and explained the resurrection. Look at Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no, no resurrection, came to him asking. And they asked him, you know, what happens in the resurrection? And they tried to give this technical problem. And it had been everybody had been by that day, asking questions, trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus, of course, used God's word in response to all of these things, and he rebuked them. Caiaphas knew the truth. Jesus, God's son, told him. And he wasn't concerned with God at all. He didn't even believe in the resurrection, which means he didn't even believe in God. It was just a cultural thing to do to remain in power. We see in John 11... Going back to that narrative in verse 45, that many of the Jews had come to Mary, had seen these things Jesus did, and believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did, that is, raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 47, the chief priests, so that would be Caiaphas, and the Pharisees, that's supposed to be, by the way, every time you're feeling okay, 
right? The Pharisees, they were not the primary ones in power, but they were the ones considered to be the, the biblically orthodox people, the people that were following God's word. Be careful. Don't get on your high seat about you knowing the right way to do everything and that you have the right and only understanding of God's word because you'll end up at the same table with the unbelievers because pride puts you there. If you know something and understand something about God's word, an insight that many do not, be humble about it. Praise God for the fact that he has opened up your eyes and revealed this truth to you and then mercifully give it to others. Humbly give it to others. Again, verse 47, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered at the council and said, What shall we do? For this man, that is Jesus, works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place, that is our position, and our nation. So everything that we've built, everything that we have, they'll come take it away. We can't have them following Jesus. Look what it says in verse 49. It says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole, that the whole nation should perish. He's already saying, Look, all we've got to do is kill him. And then our nation and our structures and everything we've built, it gets to stay. Now, verse 51, this is interesting. Now, this, he, that's Caiaphas, did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. All right, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through this guy. That Jesus would die for the nation. In verse 52, and not that the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. All those Gentiles, all those people scattered abroad, Jews and Gentiles alike, all those that belong to God, Jesus would die for them. The Spirit of God spoke through this unbeliever and yet he did not see or want to obey God. He just kept doing what he wanted to do to preserve himself. Remember what Jesus said just prior to his transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. Then, that is Jesus speaking, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and in the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And you know, Jesus is very clear. If you try to preserve yourself, you will be lost. You cannot save yourself. Every one of us in this room are sinners. 
We need to be like Mary and be grateful for God's forgiveness. Take all that we have. Listen to God's word. Repent. Be grateful. Understanding that it may bring some persecution. In this narrative, when we come back to John 11, after Caiaphas had prophesied and that narrative comes up, that Jesus is going to die for the nation and for the world. What's, their, what's his response? What is their response? It says in John eleven fifty three. Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. We need to be like Jesus. We need to turn our face towards God's calling. In Luke 9, verse 51, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face, this is Jesus, to go to Jerusalem. There are hard things ahead of us all. In your personal life, in your business life, maybe in our community, we need to be like Jesus and steadfastly face what is before us in obedience to God's word. Jesus was truly about his father's business. He knew that suffering and death were before him in Jerusalem. You know, back in that passage in John 12, after all this that goes on, it says that, the, that they, that is, all of the people that were going to Jerusalem for Passover, had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. He knew that, they, that, that all the powerful leaders were scheming to kill him, and he knew that he needed to suffer and die, not only for the sins of Israel and the people of the world then, but for you and I. Again, he knew that suffering and death were before him in Jerusalem. He also knew that to complete the good work in you and I, that he needed to die sinless for our sin and receive the penalty of sin to himself that we might be reconciled to the Father. People of God, seek God in His Word. Believe what God's Word says. And demonstrate your belief in God's Word by taking actions and obedience to the Word of God, even if it is hard to obey. Remember, you are reconciled to God and are in fact at His table even in the midst of your enemies and hardships. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your, your mercy. We thank you that you love us. We humbly come before you and say, Lord, help us to obey your word and to have the courage to take action from it. In Jesus' name, amen.